everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us, let me just welcome you and say that I'm very glad that you're here with us today. My name is Christian Keeter, and I live in the southeast of the United States of America with my amazing, beautiful, godly wife, Lacey, and our two wonderful daughters, Felicity and Serenity. So I want to begin by reading something that Jesus said, which... Seems like a really good idea for a podcast called I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. Um, this is recorded in John 13, 34 through 35. And uh, before I read the passage, this is the night of the Passover meal. This is the night of the Last Supper. This is uh, the night before his crucifixion. This is when he washes the disciples' feet. And when he says this, he's saying this to the 11 because Judas has already left to go betray him and to sell him out. So John 13, 34 uh, through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so what is Jesus saying is the defining mark of somebody who follows him? What is the defining quality of someone who is his disciple? It's love. That's what he says here. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, this love is going to be the way that you were identified as one of my disciples. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, is what he said. And notice what quality of love. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so I really don't think that we could overstate the importance of love in the life of a Jesus follower, in the life of a disciple. I mean, if you think what's the most famous Bible verse in the entire Bible, it's going to be John three sixteen, And what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The entire gospel is driven by God's love. And so this is something that... Uh, really can't, I, I don't believe, can't be stressed too much. In fact, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and say that if we're walking in true biblical love, if we are loving the Lord and loving others, then everything else will fall into place. Everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be in its proper order, proper priority. That love will give us extreme clarity in decisions and things that we're doing. Uh, in fact, let me just read a couple of verses here. Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, um, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So what is Paul saying here, though? What is his logic? Well, he goes through a few of the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. But then he goes on to say, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what's his point? He's saying if someone is loving their neighbor as themselves, if they're obeying the command to love their neighbor as themselves, then they're not going to do these other things. If someone is walking in love, then they're not going to want to murder somebody. You know, like this, just to kind of put some real skin on this. That's just kind of the idea here. And so the, and then he goes on to say, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So he says that love fulfills the law. In other words, that if we're walking in love, then we're going to walk in accordance with the rest of the law. Now, you might already be thinking of something that Jesus famously said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, whenever he was asked, what was the greatest commandment? He says, beginning in verse 37, uh, 
He says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so just really quickly, that phrase at the very end where he says uh, the law and the prophets, that that phrase refers to the, uh, you know, at, during this time, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so they just had the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and uh, the phrase the law and the prophets refers to the totality of that thing. It's just basically saying, it's like, okay, everything is summed up in loving God and loving others. If we're walking in love towards God and toward others, then everything else will fall in line. Again, just think about the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to have any other gods before the Lord if if I love him. I mean, think about just any of the commands all throughout the Old Testament. It's like, is somebody going to, you know, have idols in their life if they love the Lord, their God, with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind? Is someone going to walk in disobedience to him? No. Love will work itself out into behaviors. And so my point is just using these passages to illustrate the importance of love and how everything is summed up in love. And that's why I said earlier that I don't think we can overemphasize the importance of it. Because if we are walking in love, then everything else is going to fall in line. It's going to have its proper place. And I mean, just to, and in 1 John 4, you know, God, it, it says famously about the Lord, it says God is love. And so that's a, you know, a famous passage. So I just use these as examples to show the importance of love in the life of a believer. Now, love is a, um, love is, I guess, somewhat of a controversial term because different people have different connections with it or different, um, rather definitions of it. What comes to their mind when they say love varies a lot from person to person. So, for example, if you say, you know, ask somebody what love is, they may say, well, it's embracing my lifestyle without criticizing me. One person might say that. You ask somebody else, what's love? They might say, well, love is when you tell somebody the truth that they don't want to hear and you just lay it out to them and they have to handle it themselves. You don't need to worry about being gentle. Just give them the hard truth. And that's, you know, tough love. And so you have, and there's all sorts of other definitions that people could have. And so but we have to make sure that we have the biblical definition of love because love is a word. Again, especially in the culture that we live in, love is a word that has been um, subject to many different definitions and we need to make sure that we have the right idea in our minds. Now, Jesus is being, uh, is described as being full of grace and truth. This is in John one. He's described as being full of grace and truth. And I would like to suggest to you that true biblical love perfectly balances those two, those two things. So if we want to be walking in love, then we need to be walking in grace and truth. And so just think about it. If you operate in grace only without truth in your interactions with other people, then you're just enabling them. Then you're just telling them things that they want to hear. You never actually say the things that are awkward or difficult, but that would actually help them. You just kind of don't stir the pot. You don't make waves. And even if they're engaging in a self-destructive lifestyle, you still don't speak up because, you know, just... I just don't want to, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to upset them. So that, you know, it's kind of like grace without truth. Now, the flip side of that truth without grace is kind of like when you turn the sword of the spirit into a bludgeoning tool where you um, just beat people down where there's not sensitivities to how they feel, where there's um, perhaps even a lack of mercy. And what you're saying is true, but it's harsh. It's brutal. It's even cruel. And you just think, well, they just need to deal with it. And so we see both of these things, um, have to be balanced. And frankly, we see both of these things perfectly displayed at the cross because at the, uh, at the cross, we see, um, the, the grace and mercy of God extended towards us who, um, 
who unrighteous sinners are separated from God and can do nothing to fix that ourselves because Jesus died on our behalf and gave us away when there was no way. So there we see the grace and mercy of God, but we still see the justice of God, right? The, the, the truth that, um, sin has consequences. We see that Jesus is taking the payment for the sin. He is enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. And so, um, that, so we see the grace and the mercy, grace and truth perfectly displayed right there. So grace and truth, we have to walk in these things. Uh, We have to find this balance and one at the expense of the other will produce something that is a distorted version of love, but not true love in and of itself. Grace and truth, grace and truth. Um, In fact, let me give you an example from my own life that will hopefully illustrate uh, what I mean when I'm talking about the grace and truth thing here. So a number of years ago, I was at a buddy's birthday party and um, there was just a small group of us there at his apartment and present in this group were his adopted mom and his biological mom. And uh, I'll call I'll call his biological mom bio mom for short, because um, one it saves time, and two it sounds dramatic and intimidating. So adopted mom and bio mom. Now bio mom is living uh, or was living in a an overtly sinful lifestyle. I don't know if she would have claimed to have been a believer or what, but her her lifestyle was you know is definitely a sinful lifestyle. Adopted mom claimed to be a believer, and so we're all just kind of hanging out doing whatever. And adopted mom then, <laughs> then pipes up in, in the middle of, you know, everybody's kind of sitting there, uh, says to, to her adopted son, now I don't want you living like your biological mom because she's doing this, that, and the other, and so on and so forth. And she says this in front of bio mom and everybody else. And uh, needless to say, things began to escalate a little bit because, I mean, uh, I, I don't think that bio mom appreciated being um, publicly insulted. And, uh, and so things are escalating some, I'm the kind of person who doesn't like conflict or tension or awkwardness. So at this point I was probably looking for the nearest window to jump out, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it continues to escalate. My friends and I step out on the front porch and I'm sure that that was his best birthday ever. Uh, we talked a little bit and, um, I actually feel sorry for him that things went that way, but here's my question. Here's the reason why I bring up that illustration. Was adopted mom right? Well, yes and no. She was right in her actual assessment about bio mom's lifestyle, that it was sinful. That was right. But she was very wrong in delivery and and just how it was handled. She is an example of truth without grace. And you can look at it and be like, yeah, nothing, nothing good came from how she handled that. Like all that came of it was, uh, an, an argument, um, between biological mom, adopted mom, um, a big awkward circumstance in my friend's birthday party. I mean, no, nothing good came from that. And that was just truth without grace. So we have to have truth and grace. We have to have truth and grace that those are indispensable components of love. Now, many of you probably know, um, the Greek word that was translated as love in the passages that I read uh, just a few minutes ago. There's a, you know, there's, there are multiple words that are translated as love in, in the Greek language. So the most famous of these is going to be the word agape. Agape, this is probably not the first time you've heard this. In, in these verses that I read in Romans 13, Matthew 22, the first verse I read in John 13, even where it says God is love, all of those are, um, they're either the, the, the word agape or a different form of it. 
Like they're either the noun agape or the verb form of agape, but they all come from this root agape. And so if we want to obey these verses, then we need to understand um, a little bit more of what agape is. And so I could give you a textbook definition right now. I could do that. I could say, well, let's just go through kind of a, um, a definition of what agape means and see some places where it's used. And that would be helpful. But, you know, that's something you can easily do on your own with Google um, or um, blueletterbible.org, which is a wonderful resource um, for looking in the Greek. It's one that I use very frequently. So instead of giving you just kind of a textbook definition, I'm going to let the Bible describe agape to us. So instead of giving a definition, we're going to see a description. And this description is going to come from one of the most famous chapters, probably in the entire Bible, and that's going to be 1 Corinthians 13, famously known as the love chapter. So in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is describing love. And this is, you, you'll remember, he'll, he's saying, love is this, love is this, love is not this, love does not, love does. And so he goes through these qualities of what love is, what it is not, what it does or doesn't do. And it's important to know that when he's using the word love, it is the word agape. And so it, it can actually be a little bit, a little helpful for us to replace the word love with agape there because we're actually kind of, I don't know, I feel like re-engaging our minds in a way. So agape is this. It's like, well, what is agape? Well, agape is this. Agape is not that. Agape and then, uh, and so on. And so we're going to, we're going to look at this, but just as we read through these verses, just in, in, envision that Paul is holding up like a really precious gem. Um, a precious stone, like a diamond or something. And he's slowly rotating this gem in front of us. And as he does, the light reflects off the different facets of this thing. And so he's giving us these different qualities, these different facets of love, but they're all describing the one thing of agape. And then for me, that's um, a helpful way to, to kind of think about it, I think. So transitioning. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so I just read that out of the English Standard Version. Let me read that last verse again out of the Amplified Version, because when it says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, that sounds it's really nice and, and really beautiful and really poetic. But, you know, at first reading, it might be kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around what's actually being communicated. But the Amplified Version really draws this out for us a little bit. So let me read that of just verse um, 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love bears all things regardless of what comes. Believes all things, looking for the best in each one. Hopes all things, remaining steadfast during difficult times. Endures all things without weakening. So that all sounds really poetic and beautiful. And we can see why it's such a popular passage in so many different ways and different contexts. But we just have to ask ourselves the question. It's like, okay, if love is really this important, um, if it's supposed to be the defining quality of me as a Jesus follower, how do I measure up with this? How do I, how do I do when I look at myself in light of this list? And so I want to invite you to do a little personal assessment. And I'm just going to use my name right now, but to go back through that list, the first Corinthians 13, four through seven, and put your name there instead of love. And then ask yourself, is this true of me? So I'll do this right now. Christian is patient and kind. Christian does not envy or boast. 
Christian is not arrogant or rude. Christian does not insist on his own way. Christian is not irritable or resentful. Christian does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Christian rejoices with the truth. Christian bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So how did you do? How'd you score on this self-assessment? If I were being honest, um, I would have to admit that I fall woefully short on this. And I'm not just saying that because it's the right thing to say and saying it because it's true. And, uh, and I, in fact, I've seen even recently how much I really do need to grow in this area of love. When I look at this list and, you know, insert my name in there, if I were being honest, I would have to say things like Christian can be impatient. Um, Christian can, uh, be irritable. Christian can feel threatened by people who do things better than him. Christian can be bitter and rude. Christian can, you know, and I could, I could go on if I'm just, I'm just being honest with you guys. Cause I mean, if we want to move forward at all, we have to actually acknowledge where we are. And so I don't know about you, but I see in myself a great need to grow in this area. And, um, and, and, and you might as well. And so I say all of this just to highlight the importance of being honest with where we are, because this is like we've already seen of the utmost importance. And uh, for those of us who follow Jesus, love, uh, it's, it's, it's extremely important. It, it should be the defining characteristic of, of those of us who, who are his disciples. Um, so this is something that really deserves our attention. Pete Scazzaro um, is a podcaster that I have been listening to some recently, and I've really been blessed by a lot of his content. And uh, he is was on the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. And I was listening the other day at the gym just just to listen. I wasn't looking for content necessarily or anything like that. But he made a statement that was so good that I wrote it down and wanted to include it here. He said, love really is the mark of a true and mature spirituality. Love really is the mark of a true and mature spirituality. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we mature? You know, as we do this self-assessment, as we look in the mirror with love, as we consider these verses that we've already seen, can I say, yes, based off that, I could confidently say that I am spiritually mature. Like I shared with you guys, I I see a lot of ways that I could still grow. And even using the example from earlier at my friend's apartment, I mean, I don't think anybody would look at the adopted mom's behavior and say, oh yeah, that was mature. That was spiritually mature behavior. No, we wouldn't say that. We might not be able to fully put our finger on why, but something just inside of us intuitively knows, no, that was not, uh, that that something about that just wasn't right. And it, it was, it was truth without love. It was truth without grace. Um, so spiritual maturity. When we look in the mirror, do we see someone who is, uh, who's really, who's walking in true biblical love? And another way to ask that question is, do we see someone who is spiritually mature? Now, when we see a lack of maturity in us, a lack of spiritual maturity or a lack of love in our lives, there's a couple things that we commonly do. Um, I know that I've done both of these things in my life. And if we want to grow in this area, if we want to grow in love, if we want to grow in spiritual maturity, if we want to be emulating this quality of love that we've seen is of the utmost importance, then we can't do these two things. We, we cannot. We have to fight the urge to do these two. And so these the, the two things that we do are, um, well, you know, let's just go one by one. The first one is we hide behind giftedness. 
will hide behind giftedness or ability or accomplishment or something like that. So let me see how many scholars we have out there. Um, feel free to answer out loud if you're feeling uh, interactive or whatever. First Corinthians 13, that's the passage we just looked at with love. Um, what comes before First Corinthians 13? I'll give you a second to think about that one. Yes, it was 1 Corinthians 12. If that's what you said, then congratulations, you got the answer. Now, but wait, here's the real curveball. What comes after 1 Corinthians 13? If you said 1 Corinthians 14, then you are correct again. So what does all this mean? Uh, well, all this means, for one, that we, we know how to count, and so we should feel great about ourselves for that. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is this, is that 1 Corinthians 13 is not just some random, isolated passage. It's in the context of a bigger letter. It is in the context of a real letter written to real people in the real city of Corinth in the first century A.D., and, you know, this is this is true of all the letters of the New Testament, but but there's there's context around it. And if you sit down and you read a letter from start to finish, that'll really give you the feel and the flow of the letter and help you to understand what is actually being said there. I know that um, first Corinthians is a long letter. I mean, it's 16 chapters. It's uh, I think it's, it's Paul's second longest letter. In fact, just as a side note, Paul's letters um, are organized in the New Testament from longest to shortest. And uh so Romans is at the beginning, and then it just kind of gets shorter, 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 all the way down to Philemon. Unless you think that Paul wrote Hebrews, but that's just a completely different conversation. And so, but yeah, that's that's how they're organized. And so 2 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians is the second longest letter he wrote. So I understand that it's long, but but there's a context. And so let's look at the verses, that, or the just the passages that kind of frame 1 Corinthians 13 and understand a little bit about what he's even saying. So 1 Corinthians... Um, 12. You might already know this, but in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's talking about the body of Christ and spiritual gifts. He's, uh, he gives us this wonderful illustration of how, you know, we, um, you know, we are the body of Christ. Jesus is going to be the head and we are his body and different parts of the body have different functions. And this is going to be connected to how he has gifted and wired us the spiritual gifts we've been given. Um, spiritual gifts, uh, every believer, um, everyone who is born again has one. Um, they are given by the Holy Spirit as he wills. They are for the common good and for God's glory. Uh, and we could, you know, keep talking about this. You can read all about spiritual gifts in passages like 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, uh, Ephesians 4, some in 1 Peter 4. I mean, if you just type in verses on spiritual gifts in Google, you'll you'll get these. But so this is what he's talking about. And I, I don't want to get into a whole bunch of teaching on spiritual gifts right now, but the context is spiritual gifts. And so then as he goes through this whole passage in 1 Corinthians 12, there is half of a verse at the very end, the very last half of a verse in the entire chapter 12. And this is the hinge um, between chapters 12 and 13. This is the link in the chain. This is the connector between these two things. And first, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31b. So like I said, it's only the second half. Paul says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Well, more excellent than what is the question? He says he's going to show us a more excellent way. More excellent than what? He's talking, he's making a comparison between um, this conversation about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 and then what he's going to talk about in 1 Corinthians 13. And then we know when he turns the corner, let me read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. So he says, um, and I will show you a still more excellent way than continuing in verse 1 of 13. Uh, through three, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so then immediately after that, that was the end of verse three. Then it goes right into the verses we've already read. Um, you know, uh, love is patient and kind and so on. And so notice what Paul is saying here. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now, I mean, he talks about, I, again, we're talking about spiritual gifts and he talks about tongues in chapters 12 and chapters 14. And he goes through these other um, topics as well. He says, uh, you know, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith and, and all this, but have not love, I'm nothing. And so what is he, what is he getting at here? What he's saying in essence is this, even if I have all the spiritual gifts to the uttermost, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Now, before moving on, let me just quickly say that I'm in no way, shape, or form depreciating, bashing, or insulting spiritual gifts at all. I mean, spiritual gifts are wonderful things given by the Spirit of God uh, to build up the body of Christ, to build one another up. It's for the common good, it says in 1 Corinthians 12. And also, it glorifies God when we're operating in these things. I mean, it's uh, these are wonderful things, and we should be diligent to search out and employ our spiritual gifts because, I mean, we're depriving one another if we're not. I mean, we have a role in the body to fill and and we, we need to be diligent to seek out how the Lord has gifted us and, and seek to employ that. But my point is just that spiritual gifts aren't a measure of maturity. That's just, if we look at what Paul says, I look at what he said. He says, you know, um, and, and he says, without love, I am nothing. Even, you know, even he, and he describes these other things in such over the top ways. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Notice how many times he used the word all there. And so it's just like over the top to the point that he's making is such a, a potent description, but he says without love, all this is nothing. And this is important for us to understand because, uh, it can be easy to hide behind giftedness. Um, and, uh, and, and kind of deflect to that instead of actually looking in the mirror about whether or not we're spiritually mature. So if the gifts of the spirit don't reflect whether or not we're mature, what does? Well, it's the fruit of the spirit. And you, you probably already know what the fruit of the Spirit is. You know, Galatians 5, through 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so these qualities here in Galatians 5, like if you were to, if you were to look at somebody who emulated all these qualities, someone who's walking in love and joy and peace and patience and so on, and someone were to ask you, are they spiritually mature? You would say, well, yeah. Like if, and again, these terms properly, I, I um, properly defined. Like again, the first item on that list is love. And we already saw that if we're walking in love towards God and towards others, then everything else is going to fall in place. And so if somebody is, you know, emulating these nine qualities here in Galatians 5, then yeah, I mean, that that is the measure of maturity, the presence or absence of these things in our lives. But the presence or absence of gifts does not show maturity. It shows giftedness. That's it. And so perhaps an example from my own life would be helpful. Um, I have a, I have a, a really good memory. It's something that I can't take credit for. It's I just I just have it. It's just a gift from the Lord. He just gave me a, a really good memory, and I think there's two big reasons that He gave me this. One is so that I could remember a bunch of useless facts about Lord of the Rings. 
<laughs> and two, and more seriously, would be, I think that he's given me this good memory because it supports the the calling and giftedness he has in my life, which is that of a teacher. Um, he's called me to be a teacher. I believe he's gifted me in that way. And that's not anything I can take credit for. I'm just using this as an example. And so the, um, the memory helps me to just retain a lot of information, retain a lot of scripture, just very, very easily. And, but this is where things get complicated. People will look at me and think that I, you know, they'll, they'll see that I can remember scriptures that I can quote scriptures and they will assume that I'm spiritually mature just because I can quote scriptures. And that's just false. Just because someone can quote the Bible doesn't mean they're mature at all. Nobody would say that the Pharisees were actually spiritually mature, even if they had the, the, the veneer of maturity and spirituality. It's like, you know, go read Matthew 23 and see what Jesus said about those guys. And so it's like, I, I've been able to deflect and hide behind this giftedness. Like, okay, I've got a good memory. I can quote a lot of scripture, but those things aren't actually indicators of maturity. I mean, not at all. It just means that I have a good memory. And, you know, it's, and, and someone can have a good memory and yet not emulate the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody can have, be a, you know, a great speaker and teacher or a great preacher um, and, and not be emulating the fruit of the Spirit. And so this is, this is just my point. Um, and, and you can use this with, you can go through any, that was just one example of, of gifting. And so before moving on, I want to expand that a little bit because somebody listening might, this might be like, well, I don't feel like I'm that spiritually gifted. First off, if you're born again, then you have a spiritual gift and you have an indispensable place in the body of Christ. Again, I would encourage you to read first Corinthians 12, specifically the passage where Paul is talking about the um, different parts of the body and how the hand can't say to the foot that they don't need, like all of us, all of us play a, an indispensably important role in the body of Christ. But even so, let me just say, it doesn't necessarily have to be spiritual gifts. You can hide behind achievement, um, the opinion of others, um, accomplishment, and things like that. You can hide behind all of these things that you do and fly beneath the radar that these things are not actually indicators of maturity. Because here's something that's true, guys. Love and spiritual maturity, these qualities that we just read in Galatians 5, the, the, the first of which is love, and that's the one we've been focusing on today. These things... Um, you can like, you can fly beneath the radar with these things because these things are harder to measure. You know, it's easy to look at one another's behaviors, one another's actions. And so a lot of times we can do a lot of the right external actions and yet not actually be walking in love. Um, you know, that's, that's just, that's, that's just a reality that we can do that. And so what happens is sometimes we get so focused on behavior modification that we just become really legalistic. And on the inside, we're not developing these qualities of maturity on the outside. We're doing and saying a lot of the right things. I mean, I've seen myself do this in my own life and we just have to be honest with ourselves. So one would be to hide behind giftedness, achievement, accomplishment, or any other sort of behavior or thing that we do. Um, it, it, it's to focus more on what we do as opposed to who we are. Uh, but spiritual maturity is going to be more about who we are. So the second thing we do, that's the first thing. The second thing is we blame shift. And this is just basically when we try to make ourselves victims and refuse to be accountable for our own um, decisions, choices, and behaviors. So for example, if we are, if we are rude to somebody or impatient, what is the first thing we instinctively do? We instinctively, instinctively look for ways to justify the behavior, um, with things like, I'm sorry, I was, I was tired. I was hungry. I was stressed, whatever. Um, you know, and so we just look for ways to justify or to blame 
to shift the blame off of us onto either other people or on circumstances around us. But here's the thing. If we want to grow in love, if we want to grow in spiritual maturity and love and these other qualities in the fruit of the spirit for that matter, we have to take responsibility for our own emotions and behaviors. We have to say, you know, now I'm not going to say so-and-so made me do this or they made me feel that way because that's just not true. And this is how I know. Two people can go through the exact same circumstance and yet respond very differently, both behaviorally and even emotionally. And so that shows that it's not the issue of the specific circumstance that happened. Our response is something that we must own, that we must take um, responsibility for. And here... We like being victims because we're absolved of personal responsibility, but if we choose to be victims, then we're willingly and overtly saying, I don't have control of my life. Other people control my life because what happens around me and what other people do to me govern how I feel and what I do. And so, which, you know, none of us would overtly say that, but that is the logical conclusion whenever we blame shift and, and don't take responsibility for what we've done and for what we've said. Now, let me just say this. Um, these things like being tired and being hungry, um, being stressed out, those are those are real things, and they can impact how we're feeling. But I want to—I I just want to make a distinction. You know, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, it says, "No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it." And so it says, what, what does it say? Um, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, which means this: when we're in that circumstance. We didn't have to respond wrongly. The temptation might have been there. When you are tired and hungry and stressed, well, sure, you're going to be more tempted to respond in ways that you shouldn't. You might be more tempted to be irritable or frustrated or, yeah, of course, you're going to be more tempted in those ways. I'm drawing a distinction between temptation and responsibility here because the Bible says if the Bible is true, which I obviously believe wholeheartedly that it is, then the temptation was not too much. Even if you thought it was too much, it was not too much. And so it says, again, uh, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So that's just we have to take responsibility for our emotions. Um, We have to take responsibility for our behaviors. Um, And there's a whole lot more we could talk about regarding that. Um, But Proverbs 17.3, listen to this. It says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Now, this is a really helpful passage of scripture when we're talking about this because um, it's talking about the purification of uh, precious metals and then comparing to that to how the Lord tests hearts. So again, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. So, you know, in ancient times, how are metals purified? Uh, well, you would, of course, heat the metal up, and when it's heated up, then the impurities would rise to the surface in a molten state, and then you could scrape those impurities off the top, and as you did, the more purified the metal was. It was becoming less and less of an alloy, uh, an alloy and more and more of um, that just that, that pure metal, be it silver or gold or, or whatever. But here's the thing. What does the heat reveal? The heat reveals the impurity. The heat reveals the impurity. 
And so my point is just saying this, when we're in those circumstances, when we're one way that we take responsibility for what we see in ourselves is to realize that, you know, whenever we're irritable or um, envious or rude or something like that, it's not our circumstances or other people that caused it. That was something on the inside that rose to the surface, that the heat around us uh, revealed. The way that my pastor puts this point is he says, crisis reveals character. Crisis reveals character. And so just to kind of lengthen that a little bit, circumstances don't cause our behavior. Circumstances reveal our character. And if we can really believe that, then we can really start taking ownership of what we see instead of just blame shifting all day long, saying that so-and-so made me feel a certain way or something like that. And, And let me just also say, I'm not trying to diminish anybody's struggles or anything like that. I'm actually trying to empower you say, hey, hey, you're not a victim. Like, I, I know that the hand that you've been dealt may be very, very hard, but with God, all things are possible. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. And um, and if you're born again, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so I just want to encourage and empower you and say, even if you were victimized in the past, they, they don't have control over you. They don't have control over you. And so I do just want to, to include that. So Another illustration would be this, to communicate the same point. I think C.S. Lewis came up with this illustration, but um, I was looking for it and I couldn't find it. Uh, and so, But I'm almost certain that he was the one where I originally read this. He talked about if you put tea in you know, lukewarm water, what happens? Well, nothing really happens. You just have some lukewarm water with tea in it. That's, that's not, but it's not, it's not steeping. It's not... Um, affecting the flavor of the water. But if you add that tea to hot water, the flavor of the tea is then released. Same principle here. When we're in kind of lukewarm water, everything's just kind of fine. It's like, you know, we can be on our best behavior, whatever. When we're placed in hot water, what comes out reveals what was within. And these illustrations, I mean, there are plenty of these. You know, if you if you squeeze an orange, what comes out? Well, orange juice. If you were to crush apples, what would you have? You'd have, you know, apple juice. And so, how ridiculous would it be for like an orange if it could speak to say, um, say, hey, you know, I'm an apple, I'm an apple. And then when it was pressed, orange juice came out and it's like, no, 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 my, my circumstances just made me do that. But I'm actually an apple. It's like, no, you're an orange. OK, that's what you are. And so crisis reveals character. Um, beha- uh, circumstances don't cause behavior. They reveal character. And so we just have to uh, humble ourselves and look in the mirror with these things and be honest. So then what do we do, though? But what do you do if you're like me when you look in the mirror and you don't see the kind of love that you would like to see? What what do we do? Um, well, we've already talked about two things we don't do. We don't hide behind abilities and giftedness and we don't blame shift. And so when those two things are taken away and we're just kind of left with ourselves, where do we go from here? Well, first, the answer is not going to be some behavioral pray for 45 minutes, read for 45 minutes, do that, you know, at least six days a week and boom, you know, after a month, you'll be good. no. This isn't just a matter of behavior modification, although prayer and the word of God are definitely going to be major components in this process, but it's not just a check these boxes off and you'll be good. Listen, an old mentor of mine used to say the kingdom of God is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. 
not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. And so is there that desperation in you? Because when we cry to the Lord in our trouble, when we call out to him, when we are in this place of desperation and uh, and humility and brokenness, and that is fertile soil for a move of the Spirit of God. Um, you know, we know that the, the Bible says things like, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and, and so on and so forth. Um we need to pray things like what David prayed in Psalm 51:10, which says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We need to be desperate in coming to him. But I would just say this, it's like, if we really want to see ourselves grow in love and walk in love, then we need to receive love to give love. Now, God has lavished us with more love than is like, he, he, he's, there's nothing, he's not holding anything back. He's lavished us with as much love as is possible. It's like, uh, you know, in first John, in fact, let me just, uh, pull up this verse real quick. Um, I don't have this one in my notes, but in first John three, see what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are It's first John three, uh, the first part of three, one, um, you know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. I mean, he, there's, there's nothing more to give. He has given us his full love. But, but that's objectively true, but we need to experience that in a subjective way in our hearts. We need to believe that and experience that and that not just to be some facts on a page, but a truth in our heart. It is true and we need to experience it as true. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Uh, well, there's going to be desperation. Of course, like I said, there's going to be crying out to God. There's going to be, um, humility and, and owning where you are and not, you know, um, blaming other things for our behavior, but we just need to put ourselves in a position to really receive from the Lord. And so how do we do that? Instead of describing it and defining it, we're going to do it together here really quickly. And we're going to use Psalm 23. This is just going to be a, a quick meditation on Psalm 23. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll comment along the way as I read it. And then I'll, I'll wrap up here. Psalm 23. Um, verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So let's pause and just think about that. The Lord is my shepherd. He takes care of me. I'm his sheep and the shepherd takes care of the sheep. He looks after the sheep. He protects the sheep. He takes, he meets all my needs. He provides for me. Continuing in verse two. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And that was also the beginning of verse three. So he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He takes me to place of rest, uh, to rest. He takes me to place to places of renewal and restoration. He leads me into peace and not panic in calm and not fear and anxiety and dread and worry. Continuing in verse three, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So we could say, it's not on me. He's carrying the burden. It doesn't say he leads me in paths of righteousness as long as I'm good enough. He says, no, he does it for his own name's sake. He's made a covenant with his people and he's going to hold up his end of the deal, period. Moving on to verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So yes, circumstances can be intimidating and frightening, but the presence of the shepherd is my comfort. And his com- the comfort of his presence overwhelms the fear of the circumstances. All we have to do is to be aware of his presence, that he is there with us in the darkest valley, and he's walking right beside us. Even if it's too dark to 
to really even see him, we know he's right there with us and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Although there may be enemies surrounding me, there's enough peace in his presence to be able to sit down and to have a meal. He takes care of me. He protects me. And it's just his presence and his protection that lead to my peace. Verse 6 here. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This this is a little bit, not to get too teachy here, but something really incredible where it says, goodness and mercy shall follow me. The verb translated as follow is a, it's a really interesting verb that's used here. And it's used in a very unusual sense. The word that's translated as follow can also be translated as pursue. And that reflects how it's normally used. This word is often used of an army pursuing another army, chasing them down. And so a lot of times it's used in a, in a, um, not necessarily in a positive sense. It's like you're being chased down by something, but here it's connected to God's goodness and his mercy. And therefore God himself, what's the idea? is that his goodness and mercy, they're going to chase you down. Like, even if you stray, even if you wander, just like the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to get the one, his goodness and mercy, he's not going to forsake you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you, he has said in Hebrews 13, 5. And so his goodness and mercy, they will pursue you. They will chase you. They will follow you. He, he's, he's committed. He's made a promise. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So that is... That was just a quick, brief meditation on Psalm 23. We could have talked a lot more about this. But what, what's the point? If we do what I just did and really sit down and think of this stuff and do it in an undistracted way, then we should be able to feel and to see and to experience God's love in such an incredible way, to sit down and think through and meditate on these passages and ask the Lord to open our eyes and help us see how much he loves us. And whenever that happens, our cup will overflow. The love that he's pouring into us is just going to spill into other people's lives. And and we'll be operating from a place of fullness, because if you're not walking from the place of fullness of love, then it doesn't matter how much you try to pour out, you're empty. It's like trying to pour out an empty pitcher. There's nothing in the pitcher, so it doesn't matter how much you turn it upside down. And so we need to receive this from the Lord. And he's given it to us. We just need to be still and to realize it, to sit in his love and to be aware of that fact. And so just to remind ourselves of these truths and to be still and let him whisper to us. And this requires stillness, solitude, silence. I uh, didn't mean to be alliterative, but there you go. Stillness, solitude, silence, and scripture. There you go. I totally unintentional. But uh, this, what we have to be intentional to do this. And and we can't do this if we're just rushing from thing to thing to thing, we might be able to cram in a little bit, a little bit of Bible, say a quick prayer here or there. We're not talking about, you know, just kind of this, this, I don't know, superficial surface level Christian life. We're talking about really experiencing the love of God and growing in maturity. And this is something that, um, is of the utmost importance and there are people who go through their entire lives not dealing with these things. They just continue to grow in things like knowledge and and learning all the right answers, but they don't actually grow in love and all these things. And we don't want to be in that category. And so I just want to encourage you to be still and let the Lord just pour his love into you in a really experiential way. And as you do, it'll spill out into the lives of those around you. This is something that I desperately need, that you desperately need, that all of us who call ourselves Jesus followers 
need to do regularly. And if you happen to listen to this and you're not a Jesus follower, if you haven't yet reached that point, I just want to say that that same love described in Psalm 23 is available to you as soon as you're willing to receive it. I, I did an entire episode on um, the gospel. I would encourage you to listen to episodes 24, which is which are which is entitled The Gospel, and then episode 21, I Never Knew You, just to get a, a good kind of grasp on what it means to be born again and be a Jesus follower. But guys, I hope this was encouraging to you. Um, I hope that you have heard from the Lord through it and that you are encouraged and challenged just like I was uh, and currently am being through all this. But until next time, take care.